This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, it's all about the money, the unpaid bills in Puerto Rico, and the new trade agreement that has Mexico, Peru, and Chile teaming with the United States and others. But first, Natalie Ottinger is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Presidential elections in Latin America this past weekend mean a new president for Guatemala. But an unprecedented second round of voting in Argentina as no candidate amassed enough votes to win according to the country's election laws. Daniel Scioli, the handpicked successor of Argentina's president, finished first. But conservative Mauricio Macri, the mayor of Buenos Aires, provided more competition than some experts had predicted, coming within three points of the frontrunner. In his election night speech, Scioli immediately began attempts to woo undecided voters and voters who had supported the left-wing independent candidate who finished third. I call upon the undecided and independent voters to join this cause for the great future of development in Argentina. Scioli finished with about 37% of the votes. Third-place finisher Sergio Massa took 21% of the votes, more than pre-election polls and experts predicted he would take. In Guatemala, comedian Jimmy Morales swept to a landslide victory over former First Lady Sandra Torres to become Guatemala's president-elect. Morales beat her by more than 34 percentage points. However, many Guatemalans said they were dissatisfied with both candidates, and almost half the country's voters did not go to the polls. Morales' triumph comes on the heels of a protest movement that successfully forced President Otto Pérez Molina from office. In interviews this week, however, Pérez Molina said the United States and Vice President Joe Biden were primarily responsible for forcing his resignation. Guatemala's former president says the U.S. threatened to withhold aid from his country if he did not leave office. Pérez Molina faces charges that he and his administration skimmed millions of dollars in government funds during his time in office. More accusations this week that Venezuela rigged the trial of opposition leader Leopoldo López to force him into prison. And the accusations are coming from an unlikely source, one of the prosecutors who put together the case against López. The prosecutor, Franklin Nieves, posted a video online this week to explain just how the government pressured him and the judge to subvert justice. Many believe Nieves is now in hiding in the United States. The leader of Venezuela's National Assembly, Diosdado Cabello, accused the prosecutor of taking bribes from opposition groups and those interested in bringing down the Venezuelan government in the United States. A judge sentenced Lopez to 14 years in prison, saying he incited violence and killing during nationwide protests last year. Signs of the civil war that has dragged on for more than 51 years in Colombia could be headed to a conclusion. This week, Colombia's government offered a ceasefire agreement to the main rebel group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a group called the FARC. The government proposed that hostilities should be put on pause on New Year's Day 
as the two sides iron out the final stages of a peace treaty. This offer of a ceasefire came just days after new hostilities with Colombia's other insurgents, a rebel group called the National Liberation Army, or the ELN. ELN rebels attacked government security forces in an area near the Venezuelan border, leaving at least a dozen people dead. News this week that a monkey was almost the undoing of notorious drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman. Mexican special forces launched a raid on a compound in the state of Durango two weeks ago, but El Chapo gave them the slip again, although Mexican authorities say they believe the drug lord broke his leg as he and his gang members battled the military to get away. Mexican authorities revealed that El Chapo's twin daughters, who are four years old, kept a pet monkey when they lived near the prison in central Mexico, where the drug lord was kept, until his spectacular escape this summer. But after the escape, the family relocated to Durango and left the monkey behind. However, his daughters missed their pet so much, El Chapo ordered it to be shipped to his new location. Government investigators stumbled across the travel permits which helped lead them to the drug lord's hideout. By the way, El Chapo's daughters named the monkey Botas, or Boots, after their favorite character in the Door the Explorer animated series. No word yet on whether the monkey also escaped with the drug lord. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Brooklyn, New York. We had our second largest group of listeners in Brooklyn this week behind our loyal listening group in the Washington, D.C. suburbs of Northern Virginia. So we say thanks so much to all of our listeners in Brooklyn and elsewhere around the globe. And now we turn our attention to trade and finance. Earlier this month, a dozen countries along the Pacific Rim concluded a complex trade agreement dubbed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP. Negotiations for the trade deal took more than seven years and were mostly carried out in secret. The agreement includes the United States, Canada, and three countries in Latin America, Mexico, Peru, and Chile. President Barack Obama now must get the agreement approved through Congress if the U.S. is to participate. The president won fast-track approval for that process this summer, but now the issue is caught up in the U.S. presidential race, with former Secretary of State and Senator Hillary Clinton opposing the trade deal, and her main challenger, Senator Bernie Sanders, also in opposition. We asked Chris Sabatini to analyze the trade agreement and the politics surrounding it. Sabatini is with Columbia University, and he's the editor of the website Latin America Goes Global. He joined us via Skype from New York City. Hillary Clinton has come out against it. Bernie Sanders is dead set against it. Um, he got a little tripped up even when he was talking about when during the negotiations because the negotiations were relatively secret. People really couldn't see the content of the deal. Um, this is obviously a tactic that the president is using and negotiators to avoid the nitpicking and all the sort of echo chamber that can happen around you know a deal of this nature. And this is huge. I mean, it's it's twelve countries um, you know all along the Pacific Rim. Uh, South Korea, Vietnam, Australia, New Zealand, Peru, Chile, Mexico, the U.S., to name a few, representing 40% of the world's GDP. Um, it is huge. And, um, and it's also important for geostrategic reasons, which I'll talk about in a second. 
But so clearly the, the, the Obama administration tried to play it very close to the vest in the negotiations. And I think, you know, I understand why they did that, but I think it hurt them in certain ways because it allowed labor groups and others to sort of engage in a whispering campaign that there are all sorts of you know, insidious, uh, potentially insidious chapters and clauses in there that were going to hurt labor rights. So now what he's got to go out, out and do is, is sell it. I think he's, you know, he's gotten it. Uh, negotiated. Um, there are some, I, I, no one's really looked at it chapter and verse, uh, but according to what we've heard, there are some real advancements in terms of upgrading um, labor rights uh, and labor, uh, the capacity to, to arbitrate uh, disputes over labor, um, also uh, upgrading environmental laws. In many ways, it is very much a sort of a modern uh, trade agreement in ways that, say, NAFTA was not. So I think that's very positive, but we really don't know all of the details yet. So, you know, in the meantime, he's going to have to confront, you know, Republicans who don't want to hand him a victory. Um, they are loath to do this, irrespective of the potential benefits. And his own Democratic Party that is heading into election year and is also uh, very distrustful and needs the AFL-CIO, the unions, to be able to back those candidates, uh, both Senate, House of Representatives, as well as a presidential candidate, and his... And, you know, the person who hopes to be Obama's heir apparent, Hillary Clinton, has already come out against it. So it's going to be a very tough slog for him. Um, I, if I were a betting man, and luckily for my family I'm not, I would be saying I, think, I don't think it's going to get passed this year because I just think in election year it's going to be difficult. Um, and, and Hillary's already, you know, what I suspect the Democrats will do will sort of squeeze out some concessions and eventually sort of in a, in a Democratic administration pass it or a Republican administration, it will be easier to get the Republicans to line up. So we're going to wait for the next president to get this done. It's premature for us to be having this chat. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't I wouldn't put this on your shelf, Rick, and wait for a couple of years. I'd like to hear my voice on the radio and on your podcast as soon as possible. So I, I, I discourage that. But I do think... Um, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, I, I think he's committed to doing it. I think he will try. But I do think the political clock is is ticking against him right now in the short term. You raise the specter of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, and that's what I've heard Bernie Sanders compare this Trans-Pacific Partnership to. And many people criticize that for the reasons that you have pointed out, that it didn't seem to be equitable to labor. And there have been various studies that have said that it exacerbated inequities in this country afterward, that it was not a good deal for Mexico, in that it, it hurt small farmers in Mexico, and we could go on about the problems that it did not address environmental needs. Um, and so there are many fears about that happening with this too. Yeah, I think this isn't NAFTA. First of all, NAFTA is somewhat flawed in the sense that it was a stripped down, bare bones, free trade agreement. They didn't go for any more, any discussions on labor and environment were sort of side issues, side agreements. Um, what has happened since then has been there's an evolution of free trade agreements because of sort of what groups learned about NAFTA, whether it's Central America Free Trade Agreement, CAFTA-DR with the Dominican Republic, in which there were requirements that basically the, the partners in Central America upgrade or improve their labor laws, protect labor rights. Um, the AFL-CIO has actually been bringing cases before the tribunals to arbitrate cases of labor rights. The, you know, the point in that being, if you will, lifting the floor a, a little bit, and then you get to the uh, Peru, well, Chile, Peru, 
uh, in particular Columbia agreements in which there are really serious improvements in terms of uh, the requirements for countries to upgrade labor laws, the requirements for countries to upgrade labor courts, and also environmental legislation. So you know, free trade will, there will always be winners and losers in free trade. And yes, I imagine uh, a number of companies given the opportunity to have you know, basically tariff-free access to U.S. market um, will go to where labor is cheaper um, just because the living is st standard of living is cheaper. Question is, and that's sort of the nature, and, and, and do you think you know, this will also benefit sort of higher-end businesses and services and financial services in particular in the United States? And there will there is certainly a risk that some jobs will head overseas because cost of living is lower in, say, Vietnam, um, in, say, Peru. And now uh, many of these countries, especially Vietnam, will now be able to uh, export their products tariff-free to the United States. And I think businesses will look for cheaper labor. But that doesn't mean that labor will be exploited. So you mentioned um, Peru, Chile, Mexico are all part of this particular agreement. Is this going to be good for them, or are we going to also see a NAFTA effect on their agricultural industries or other industries? It's a good question. Uh, you know, it's difficult, again, to untangle all of the causes and effects, and free trade is, is always difficult. You cannot attribute directly job loss, for example, to, to specific free trade agreements because there's always going to be a job churn and things, you know, it, it, things are difficult to, to understand. There are a number of benefits and challenges. The first on the benefits is what this does, uh, because all of these countries and, and have a number of free trade agreements with other member countries, whether it's Chile with Vietnam or with Australia, Mexico obviously with the United States. What this will do is harmonize those trade agreements so that the total is greater than the sum of their parts. So that you can, you create a larger market rather than what people refer to as a spaghetti bowl of just individual bilateral trade relations. That will also create um, opportunities for um, uh, value chain development across countries um, that do don't exist now. So you conceivably you know, buy the copper from Chile and send it to Australia to be made into something else, and send to Mexico and then ship to the United States. Um, you don't have that problem of rules of origin that only are limited to one country to another country's market. Um, there are also obviously opportunities of scale in terms of financing and investment. Um, all those are very positive. I think the challenge um, is going to be, can some of these countries compete in, in ways that can actually um, improve their domestic industry? Because there is a risk, again, just with, as in with the United States, some of these countries um, and their companies that invest there are going to be looking for lower labor. I think the real, the real risk here and a real loser could be, to be honest, is Central America. Central America is a uh, really sort of a textile hub for the United States. It is not part of uh, the TPP. And so whether it's Honduras or, or Guatemala that have benefited from tariff-free access for their textiles or shoeware, what have you, um, are now going to face direct competition from Vietnam, which has lower, obviously Central America has lower, has lower um, transportation costs, but countries like Vietnam, South Korea, uh, Brunei, and others are going to really, Malaysia are really going to be going, and, and Central America is unfortunately not part of the deal. Again, I think the geostrategic component is important. Um, this is a defining moment. People talk about, put it in the context of Latin America, 
the sort of loss of U.S. Uh, influence in the region. Some of it, I think, is imagined. Uh, I don't think it's real, but the um, but you know what the U.S. is trying to do for the first time in a long time is actually create a, if you will, sort of a positive pull or trend in the region um, that it can offer up. And as we look at countries that haven't engaged in the sorts of economic opening and responsible macroeconomic reforms that Chile and Peru have, which will contract, which will not suffer the level of economic contraction of a Brazil or an Argentina or a Venezuela in the next couple of years, um, I think the question is, is now many of these countries that had decided to, to quote um, Fleetwood Mac, to go their own way, um, have now, you know, they now will actually have another alternative. And I think that's interesting. Um, you know, will um, Brazil now decide that it may perhaps casting its lot with a virtually moribund Mercosur is not the best way to go? And now the U.S. has, um, and it's not, this is, it's not wielding a heavy, a, a large stick. Um, it's not dictating how people should uh, manage their economies. It is offering an alternative that people can opt for or not. And I think that's important. I think the other thing that's important is, again, this isn't an anti-China agreement, um, but it does create a large market that I think may allow some of these countries to be able to develop the, the economy of scale to be able to compete in China, where many of them, including Brazil, um, are losing to China in the global market when it comes to manufacturing products. That said, I think we need to see the details. Um, I, I think of this as a is a net good, but I don't know uh, the details. In this case, uh, the devil, or at least the the, um, the deal, is in the details. Thanks so much, Chris Sabatini of Columbia University and the editor of the website Latin America Goes Global, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from New York City. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Coming up, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico. We'll have an analysis. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Last week, the governor of Puerto Rico, Alejandro Garcia Padilla, endured the embarrassment of going to the U.S. Senate, asking for a bailout to help his island's debt problem, and instead getting a fiscal lecture from senators who were unmoved by his calls for help. The island territory is owned by the U.S. and has accumulated a $72 billion debt, a debt that Garcia Padilla predicts the territory will default on before the end of the year. We asked Mauro Guillen again for his analysis of the debt crisis. Guillen is the director of the Lauder Institute of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the co-author of Global Turning Points, Understanding the Challenges of Business in the 21st Century, among other books. He joined us via long-distance line from Philadelphia. Well, I think at the moment uh, it's a very difficult one for anything like this because, as you know, we're in the middle of a presidential campaign, uh, which is proving to be uh, very divisive for the Republican Party. And we're talking here about the U.S. Congress and the Senate. Uh, both uh, chambers are controlled by Republicans. And, uh, you know, the future of the Republican Party is at stake, and uh, there's no other issue that is most uh, problematic 
than fiscal responsibility. And, uh, you know, what has been going on in Puerto Rico for the last 20 years is all about fiscal responsibility. So it speaks directly to the most important uh, issue within the Republican Party these days. The Republicans, then, are the, are the ones that will make the difference here, that the Democrats have, have not much to say about supporting Puerto Rico? Well, no, of course they do. Uh, but you see, uh, the Puerto Rican vote in the United States is mostly concentrated in constituencies that tend to go Democratic, like New York uh, or like Chicago. Uh, you know, Republicans see very little political gain from compromising on an issue that they believe is explosive, which is they don't want to be seen as bailing out um, a U.S. territory that has notoriously failed to uh, keep its house in order, financial order, over the last 20 years. I do find it interesting that that, that is some of the argument that the current governor of Puerto Rico uses in front of Congress. He said, well, this is not my administration's problem, that this... $72 $72 billion bill that we can't pay has built up over time. Um, what, what is your analysis of, of, of that? Is his administration really just holding the bag after all of these years of mismanagement? Well, look, I mean, it is true that um, uh, you know most of the debt has been accumulated by other governors. Uh, but at the same time, what we have in Puerto Rico, what we've had for many years is... Uh, two conceptions as to the future of the island, one of them being, you know, for it to become a state, and the other one for it to become a, um, uh, you know, to continue being a U.S. territory. But both sides, uh, when they were in power over the last 20 years, have uh, used uh, the budget to um, uh, grow the size of the government. And uh, in so doing, they are both uh, responsible, right? So, sure, governors come and go, uh, but the parties supporting those government, so those governors have been around in Puerto Rico for a long time. Uh, so his own party is responsible, in part, for what has happened. When we talked to you the last time, we talked a lot about the size of the Puerto Rican government, and, and Puerto Rico's government is the one of the largest employers on the, uh, in the territory, that obviously pharmaceuticals and, and other industries are important. Um, I think many people think tourism is important in Puerto Rico, although not as important as some of these other sectors. And and so shrinking government means also shrinking their economy. Well, of course. I mean, that goes without saying that if you have a large number of people employed by the government, then obviously if you were to get rid of them tomorrow, that would, uh, you know, have a large economic impact. Uh, so it has to... Um, happen gradually. But what is very clear, I think everyone agrees, is that Puerto Rico has uh, way too many uh, public employees and uh, that this is a drag on the economy. And, uh, you know, the future of the island's uh, economy lies somewhere else, not in government employment. So, uh, you know, Puerto Rico is a place that is utterly dependent on investment coming from outside of the island mostly from the United States. Uh, but investors need to see that there's a future, need to see opportunity. Uh, so the current situation creates so much uncertainty as to the future of the, of the island that it's essentially undermining the most single most important thing that needs to happen, which is uh, investment that creates jobs. We talked a lot about what the Democrats can do, that the Democrats in the United States are the ones who take the Puerto Rican vote. The Obama administration has weighed in recently and saying perhaps 
the island should be given the same powers to restructure debts that states have. What do you feel about the Obama administration's plan? And and as you said, if it can't get through Congress, um, what's the future of that plan? Well, I think, uh, you know, that is exactly the, the way in which uh, we have always handled these types of situations in this country, not just for governments, local governments or state governments, but also for corporations. That is to say that uh, whenever an entity finds itself in a situation in which it cannot service its debt, you know, there is a, a process in place with all of the legal, you know, guarantees for that debt to be restructured. That's the American way. That's the way in which uh, we have always handled this type of situation. As you know, the problem is that U.S. territories, such as Puerto Rico, are in legal limbo because they do not, um, you know, the legislation about bankruptcy doesn't apply to them in the usual sense and about debt restructuring. So I, I, I agree with uh, the Obama administration that this is a problem that needs to be addressed in exactly the same way as we deal with um, you know, uh, excessive uh, municipal debt or excessive state debt in the U.S. Last week, we saw that these talks that the Puerto Rican government is having with the people holding its debt, with, with hedge funds and, and others, that they broke off these talks. So the, the governor of Puerto Rico has asked for a two-year moratorium on payments. I'm wondering, is that a realistic request, and how do you see this restructuring happening is it going to is there going to be a major default here and what happens after that well no i hope uh, there's no default i mean what what needs to happen is that you know uh, a number of um, you know mechanisms that exist in restructuring take place so one of them is to uh, stop payments on on the uh, on the debt right, which is moratorium another one is to restructure the debt itself uh, that necessarily means that investors are going to be taking a, a haircut right uh, another one would be to convert uh, some of this debt into uh, equity, right? Uh, and uh, once again, given that U.S. territories are in principle not allowed to do this, you also need cover from Washington, uh, or at least uh, you need Washington to look the other way, right? Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is that the government of Puerto Rico, which is deeply into debt, needs to come to an agreement with uh, the holders of bonds, right? But you need Washington to at least you know, uh, say, okay, you can go ahead and do it. What do you see as the future for Puerto Rico and its debt crisis? A situation such as, for example, happened in Argentina that just refused to pay, and for several years Argentina totally withdrew from the capital markets, that's not a possibility here, right? So, in other words, the holders of the bonds and the government of Puerto Rico absolutely need to come to some kind of an agreement. If it's true, and it seems to be true, that Puerto Rico has exhausted its ability to pay the debt under the current terms, then something's got to give. There has to be some compromise. It will necessarily come at a loss to investors, at a certain loss. But investors, you know, would always prefer uh, a small loss over, you know, a an uncertain process, uh, uh, stretching over many, many years in which it's not clear what's going to happen, right? So I think it's in everybody's interest, including the government of Puerto Rico's, to come to an agreement. What, what we also need is some uh, signal from Washington, not just from the White House, but also from Congress, that they will you know, support uh, an agreement. If you were advising the governor of Puerto Rico, what would you be telling him to do? To be flexible. Uh, to, uh, because any nego- in any negotiation, you will get 
some of the stuff that you want, and you will have to compromise on other stuff, right? So he needs to approach those negotiations with an open mind um, because it is in his uh, island's best interest to overcome this issue as quickly as possible because otherwise the uncertainty uh, right now is uh, bringing potential foreign investors, you know, that could create jobs in Puerto Rico. Uh, they're essentially not doing anything, right, until this uh, whole situation gets resolved. Thank you so much. Mauro Guillen, the director of the Lauder Institute of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, the co-author of Global Turning Points, Understanding the Challenges of Business in the 21st Century, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us from Philadelphia via Long Distance Line. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week for our focus on trade, finance, and the debt crisis in Puerto Rico. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Natalie Oninger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.